Well, if you'll take your Bibles and turn over to Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to be entirely frank with you. We are, we're, you know, tonight is more of an introduction than anything. It's not like we're going to be plowing through the first 10 verses or anything of that nature tonight. We'll, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is, you know, covers Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, so you can already anticipate we'll be here for a while through this. But tonight, more, more of an introduction. In Matthew chapter 5, we want to look at the very first verse. Seeing the crowds, he, that would be Jesus, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. I want you to imagine this evening, I want you to imagine that you are at the base of a mountain. You're at the base of a mountain, and it's a mountain that you have to climb. And so you're standing at the base of the mountain. You have to climb, and any wise climber will spend thoughtful time as to how they're going to ascend the mountain. Uh, they'll, they'll think about it. They'll think, I've got to climb this mountain now. What is the best way to approach this mountain? There might be a number of different ways that you could approach it, but what is the best way to approach ascending this mountain? And that's really what we're thinking about this evening as an introduction. We're thinking about what is the proper approach to the Sermon on the Mount. Because as you're going to see tonight through an introduction, you're going to see that there's, there's a variety of ways that people have looked at the Sermon on the Mount. And so our question is, before we start ascending the mountain, and this is a big mountain, you know, Sermon on the Mount's big, um, we're going to have to stand at the base for just a little bit and, and, and determine what's the best approach to the Sermon on the Mount. And this is important because uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus puts his finger on a number of issues of supreme importance. Let me just mention a few of them. Uh, for example, he'll talk about Christian character. That's, that's a huge issue. Uh, he'll, he'll talk about, and, and, and it's something for us to consider going through this, is what is the place of the law of God in the Christian's life? And does it have a place? We'll have to consider that. Um, we'll have to consider how we should pray. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has a great deal to say about praying. Uh, also, how can we be free from anxiety in an anxiety-ridden world? I mean, every time you turn around, you know, we, we hear someone, someone say, I'm, I am so worried, I'm so anxious. How... How do, how do we live uh, in, a, in a world that is, that is filled with a number of different reasons to be anxious and be worried? How do we do that? Jesus is going to talk about that in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, also, what is so wrong about a judgmental spirit? Why, why does Jesus lay into that? Uh, why do we need to have spiritual discernment? And is it possible for people to exercise spiritual gifts and yet still not be true Christians? Jesus talks about that in Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we must understand, and this is really important, a couple of, couple of sentences here, and I think these might be in your notes. We must understand that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus stands not only as teacher but Lord. See, one, one of the things that, that I've uh, been reminded of as I've you know, prepared getting ready for this series is that there's many people that love the Sermon on the Mount, and they say, Jesus, he's a super teacher, and he is. But the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not only teacher, but he's Lord. He's not only teacher, he's not only a great teacher, not only a supreme teacher, but he makes it clear that he is Lord. 
And, there, and there's a significant difference between just being a teacher and being teacher and Lord. We're also going to find out, and, and this is amazing because as we're going to see in just a moment, there's a lot of people that like the Sermon on the Mount. that not, They don't follow Jesus. They're not Christians, but they like the Sermon on the Mount. It's interesting. We find in the Sermon on the Mount that every person's final destiny will be settled by whether Jesus knew them or not. In, 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 in chapter 7, verse 23, depart from me, for I never knew you. Think about that. Everybody's final destiny is going to be determined by whether Jesus knew them. You know, see, we, 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 we're you know, quite ready to say, I know Jesus. I know Je- I believe in Jesus. But really, our final destiny is going to be determined by whether he knew us. See? And we'll see also that, the, that living the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to hear this tonight too, Many people talk about, if we could just live the Sermon on the Mount, that's all that's important, just live the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to see that living the Sermon on the Mount fundamentally means bowing to the authority of Jesus Christ as Lord. You know, there's, no, there's no living the Sermon on the Mount in the truest sense without bowing to the authority of Jesus Christ as Lord. Um, so let's, let's begin. Uh, you, some of you here were last Wednesday night, uh, and just, just to remind you that the, the Sermon on the Mount is quite popular uh, among, even among non-Christians. L- last week, we, uh, we, we talked about a man named Nicholas Kristof. He's um, a writer for the New York Times. And you'll remember he, his own words. He said, I'm a Christian, but not a religious one. And then we found out that he, he doesn't believe in the resurrection, Christ, and, and a number of other fundamental uh, doctrines of the Bible, in, integral parts of Christianity that if you take out, it collapses. Uh, but he said, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe those things, and I'm not a religious one. But if you'll remember, if you were here, he, he kept suggesting, why can't we just leave all that stuff and hold on to the Sermon on the Mount? Fascinating. You know, let's get, don't, don't have to believe in the resurrection. Don't have to believe in the miracles. Don't have to worry about that stuff. Let's just, let's just live by the Sermon on the Mount. So for many people, even, even non-religious, as you're going to find out in a minute, even atheists, <laughs> There's some atheists that are quite interested in the Sermon on the Mount. I, I ran across, in, in research, I ran across a website entitled Atheists for Jesus. And, and in parentheses, rescuing Jesus from the Bible. There's a lot of people want to rescue Jesus, as we're going to see tonight. But there's atheists that want to rescue Jesus from the Bible. And so you're going to see... Uh, some following statements, okay? Let's start with this one. This is from the website, and uh, so let's walk through this for just just a moment. Uh, Atheists for Jesus, rescuing Jesus from the Bible. Here's what they say on their website. According to the scriptures, the Sermon on the Mount was the largest gathering that Jesus addressed during his ministry. Now, we read in verse 1, seeing the crowds. So we're not given numbers, but we, we know it's a crowd, okay? They say that it's the largest gathering. You know, we don't know about that. But anyway, given this opportunity, he did not bring people out of the audience and cure their illnesses. He did not ask for donations. (laughs) He did not ask the people to worship him. He did not say he was going to die for their sins. Next paragraph. What he did do was to teach the following lesson. Be righteous. Be meek. Be pure of heart. Be a peacemaker. Be merciful. When given the chance to instruct a great number of people, this is what Jesus felt to be important. Then, notice now how they switch. 
Those who have held with Paul's view that it is faith and not works that lead to salvation have found it necessary to denigrate the value of Jesus' teaching. Now, just remember, these are atheists. Uh, Why in a world, why in a world that they're concerned about Jesus ought to give you pause, okay? Because atheist means non-theist, means no God. But they're interested in rescuing Jesus from the Bible. Now, what, what... And and they hold up the Sermon on the Mount. They say, here it is, Sermon on the Mount. Let's look into the Sermon on the Mount. And you won't find Jesus healing people. You won't find him asking for money. You'll find him teaching. You're teaching, you know, be this, be this, be this. And then they bring up the Apostle Paul and say, you know that teaching where Paul said, you know, it's, it's not through works that we're saved, but by grace and, you know, that sort of thing. Notice it said, and, and that led to salvation, have found it necessary. Notice Paul, Paul denigrates the value of Jesus' teachings. Now, so here's what I want to do. I want to stop for just a moment and just point out some things we should notice here because what they're saying is they want to rescue Jesus, and in particular, they like the Sermon on the Mount. So we have atheists liking the Sermon on the Mount. So here's what we need to notice here. They are suggesting that we could ignore everything else that Jesus said because only the Sermon on the Mount is reliable. If we just take the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the Bible, forget it. Just go with the Sermon on the Mount. Also, they're they're suggesting here that Jesus is a great pragmatic teacher, but that he did not die for our sins, so he's not a savior. And uh, by virtue of that, he's, he's not Lord. He's just a teacher. He's just a teacher. He's taught us some great things, but he's not Savior. He's not Lord. Uh, but notice this. They, they, they also pit Jesus' teachings against Paul's teaching. Now, that is really important. They pit Jesus and Paul against one another as if Paul went out on his own and started a new thing. He just kind of went rogue and you know, started his own thing. And that... if. And that is exactly what we are hearing if you listen closely to the culture. This is what you will hear. Jesus, cool. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, cool. Uh, But all the rest of the Bible, Paul, Peter, all these others, especially Paul. They really don't like Paul because Paul was this rogue guy who just kind of went out on his own and said, you really can't trust Paul. You can't, do you realize what we're saying here, you can't trust Paul, that's a large part of the New Testament. Just just cut that out because we really can't pay any attention to him because he just kind of went nuts and started his own thing. They believe that Paul's emphasis upon salvation by grace, not through works, was a distortion of Jesus' true teaching. And so understand the argument. It's kind of like we like Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible, by the way. They like Jesus, and they like the Sermon on the Mount of all things, but the rest of the Bible is a, just a distortion. It's just you can't be trusted, can't, can't be found reliable. Now this, folks, is an early warning that not everyone views the Sermon on the Mount in the same way. Okay? Just, let's just start with that. Not everyone views the Sermon on the Mount the same way. Not everyone approaches the Sermon on the Mount like a mountain. You know, they, don't, they don't approach it in the same way. 
Another example, a little bit further in history, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Notice this quote. Thomas Jefferson called the Sermon on the Mount the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered. Yet, Thomas Jefferson denied the deity of Jesus Christ as well as the miracles of Jesus and had his own Bible called the Jefferson Bible. The Jefferson Bible cut out all miracles and all references to the deity of Jesus Christ. I guess it was just hanging by a thread after that was over uh, because, again, it was just a gutting, uh, a gutting of all the supernatural, all the miraculous, but uh, the Sermon on the Mount. See, again, I'm just trying to point out Many people like the Sermon on the Mount, and we, you know, we need to we need to be thinking about like, why why do atheists why would atheists why would Thomas Jefferson who doesn't believe in the biblical Christ doesn't believe that Christ was God in the flesh why why would he like the Sermon on the Mount he must see something on the Sermon on the Mount he must have an approach to the Sermon on the Mount that is different different than others have former President Barack Obama on at least two occasions. One, publicly on the campaign trail, and secondly, in his book, Audacity of Hope. He cited twice the Sermon on the Mount to explain what was then same-sex civil unions. At that time, time the Supreme Court had not decided on the legality of same-sex marriages. It was same-sex civil unions. And so he was arguing the point for same-sex civil unions, and he said... If people find that controversial, in other words, if they find my position controversial, if you have a problem with that, then I would just refer them to the Sermon on the Mount, which I think is, in my mind, for my faith, more central than any obscure passages in Romans. Now, oh my goodness, that is so rich. That is so rich. In other words, he come to the conclusion, same-sex civil unions... I've I've come to the conclusion, and I came to the conclusion by the Sermon on the Mount. Interesting, okay? And and he said, which I think, now notice, which I think is, in my mind, notice that quote, for my faith. Now, we, we briefly mentioned this last week, but do you notice what's happening here? When a person says, in my mind, for my faith, what they are saying is, they are standing over Scripture rather than Scripture standing over them. In other words, I've, I've, I'm fine with this. I've, I've read this. This, this kind of fits, this fits the way I see things. Uh, and so in my mind, for my faith, and notice here too, notice this is very similar to what we just noticed with the atheists for Jesus. They, just as former President Obama did, they and he did pitted Jesus against Paul. Okay, that's an interesting theme that we will find here. In other words, Jesus said this, Paul said this, dismiss Paul. Because he he got it wrong, he went rogue, he started something new. And basically, again, just like the atheist for Jesus, former President Obama, the Sermon on the Mount is really all that's important. It's all important. Now, let's look at one other. I could not resist this one. Because I, you know, doing research just on the Sermon on the Mount, kind of, kind of wanting to understand how are people viewing the Sermon on the Mount? What's their approach to the Sermon on the Mount? And I ran across this interesting site called Why Unitarians Need to Save Jesus. 
Now that made me laugh out loud. Why Unitarians? First, a moment ago, we had atheists, remember? Saving Jesus from the Bible. And again, we had to throw up our hands and go, why? Why would they want to? They're atheists, you know? Now we have Unitarians who want to save Jesus. And Reverend Clay Johnson preached a 12-week sermon entitled, uh, 12-week sermon series entitled, Saving Jesus from the Church. Saving Jesus from the Church. Now again, why would Unitarians want to do that? And why would we say that? Because um, they, like Thomas Jefferson, deny the deity of Jesus Christ. According to the Unitarians, Jesus is just a man. He's just a human. He's not really any different than us, except he has a higher, uh, higher Christ consciousness, you see. And so why in the world, first, you know, to scratch your head and go, why in the world would they want to save Jesus? Then, to top it off, Reverend Johnson, who preached this series of sermons, is a proclaimed non-theist. <laughs> he he, he self-described himself as, I don't believe in God. Yet, he is angry because, quote, the toxic church, that would be us, by the way, the toxic church has hijacked Jesus, and we want him back. <laughs> and he went on to say that Jesus had no intention of ever starting a church. I want you to see some of the things that he said in this sermon. Unitarians, quote, reject a literal interpretation of the virgin birth. Now, this is him speaking. But we shouldn't necessarily reject the meaning behind the story of the incarnation. His life and message, that would include the Sermon on the Mount. We're not about being, uh, his, his being one and only person in history who embodied the divine, but that the sacred is everywhere. We each embody it and are one with it. Hello, Oprah. Um, that, you know, and that is, I mean, that is exactly the kind of teaching and the kind of you know, the stuff that you will hear uh, from Oprah because that is what she has been indoctrinated with. He goes on, Jesus was never a Christian but, but a good Jew. Uh, you know, Christians are Christ followers. Of course, Jesus wasn't a Christian. <laughs> he was also a prophet, a healer, a wisdom teacher, a, command, a companion, a mystic. Look at this. But no more or less the Son of God than any of us. He never claimed to be anything more than what he was, human. It's just simply not true, but he goes on. Jesus proclaimed one message, and it was not, I have come to die for your sins. And so what is it? We go on. Jesus never heard of his resurrection. Jesus never heard of his resurrection. He did not preach or promise it. But he might have understood why such stories would be told. Now, why? Like we who sometimes feel the presence of a deceased loved one, those closest to him felt the same. The resurrection stories were their way of trying to explain his inexplicable presence. Uh, the historical Jesus would be pleased when any of us are resurrected, standing up to all that entombs us, all that oppresses us. See, be careful, folks. Be careful as we get close to Easter. You will hear, you know, you will hear people talking about, you know, resurrection and resurrection power. They're not, they're not necessarily talking about the Jesus of the Bible resurrected. They're talking about that last sentence, standing up to all that entombs us, all that oppresses us, that that's really what the resurrection was about. It's not about Jesus really rising from the dead. Oh, that's silly myth. What it's really about is just a way of telling us that it's a way for us to stand up against all of the oppression in the world. Stand up, be resurrected against all that oppresses you, you see. That's, 
So here's my suggestion for the Unitarians. They can have that Jesus. They can have him. (laughs) They're wanting to resurrect him or, or rescue him from the church. They can have that Jesus because that's not, friends, that's not the real Jesus. But the Unitarians, they love the Sermon on the Mount too. But here's, here's one that I, I wanna, uh, want you to think about with me for just a moment. How many of you have heard, and probably some of you have, of what are called red-letter Christians? Anybody? Red-letter Christians. Okay. Um, red-letter Christians are those who have said, all we're interested in are the words of Jesus. So some of you probably have a Bible that Jesus' words are, in, in, in red, right? Okay. So they call themselves red-letter Christians. The red-letter Christian movement is a reaction to what's often referred to as the religious right. And so red-letter Christians came along and said, you, you, you bunch of Christians, you, you have this excessive fixation on abortion and homosexuality. That's all you all talk about. You're all fuming over that. And so here's what we want to do. They say, since Jesus did not deal with those two issues, that's what they say, we should not make them more urgent than other issues, such as poverty, global warming, racial discrimination, the role of the military, capital punishment, foreign aid, and public education. Red-letter Christians seek to redefine, now listen, here's where it's important, Red-letter Christians seek to redefine moral values according to their interpretation of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. There it is again. And other red-letter passages. However, here's what they go on to say. The rest of the New Testament is contaminated. It's a distortion of what Jesus really taught. Now, I hope hope, hope you're paying attention here. Again, there, there are those... Red-letter Christians, Unitarians, Thomas Jefferson, atheists, and, and really the list could go on, that, that say Sermon on the Mount. Yep. But the rest of the Bible, Paul, especially Paul, got off track. He, he contaminated. If we just get back to the real Jesus and his real teachings, especially the Sermon on the Mount, because the rest of it's all a distortion. They, they took what Jesus taught and they distorted it. It's a mess, you see. So I hope you're, hope you're following, okay? I hope you're tracking because you know, what we're seeing, we've got those who, who love the Sermon on the Mount. They have a certain approach to the Sermon on the Mount. rest of the Bible, not so much. Uh, found this interesting. Religious writer for the Huffington Post. Now, if you want to learn anything about Christianity, you, want, you don't want to go to the Huffington Post. That's not the best stop. But since I was doing research on this, I found this quite interesting. Uh, Here's what they said about Jesus. said, Jesus felt that he could pick and choose what parts of the Old Testament were valid and which ones weren't. Now, here's the reason that they give. Evangelicals are taught, now that would be us, they're taught in no uncertain terms that the Bible is a package deal. Believing what the Bible says isn't like going on a buffet line where you pick and choose what you like. Yet, this writer says, that's exactly what Jesus did. That Jesus picked and chose. I picked this, but not that. Okay. Here's their example. For example, the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> Jesus on a mountain speaking to those that gathered around him. Several times he quotes the law of Moses and then contrasts what the law says by saying, you have heard it said, with his own teaching that says, but I say to you. Now, what they're saying in this article is 
that by doing this, Jesus was picking and choosing. That Jesus was going, you know, Old Testament law said, don't do this. But I say, in other words, just ignore that stuff. Ignore that uh, and, and, and do this instead. Then he goes on, it says, in some points in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus simply expands what, what the Bible said, like murder being more than not just physical but also emotional anger. But Jesus also claims that some parts of the Bible were over and done and it's time to head in a new direction. <laughs> Jesus taught that some of what God said in the Old Testament was inadequate and real obedience to God meant it was time to move on. If evangelical pastors or professors pulled move on, moves like this, they'd be working second shift at Target before the week was out. So here, here's what they say. Learn a vital lesson. Our own Bible shows us that getting the Bible right isn't the center of the Christian faith. Getting Jesus right is. Now, if you were here last Wednesday night, we started with a video that said, it's all about just, just Jesus. That's all important. See, And that's what the writer at Huffington Post is saying. Jesus is all that's right. That, that, it's, it, that it's, not, it's not so much the teachings of the Bible. It's not doctrine. It's just getting Jesus right. But if you were here, you remember that that's not at all the case. That's not at all the case. In other words, how are we going to know what Jesus said without the Bible? How are we going to know the real Jesus without the Bible? See? So what we're seeing here again is Jesus now not being pit against Paul, but he's being pit against the Bible. And so uh, let, me, let me move on. Here's some questions. I think these are in your in your notes, and I want us to go through these one by one because we're talking about we're talking about our approach to the Sermon on the Mount. Here, here's here's what we need to think about, and I want you to I put these in note form so you could take them with you and, and think about them. Is the Sermon on the Mount all we are to give attention to? So, some will say, and I have a quote there: "If we could all just live by the Sermon on the Mount." Some will say. That's, you know, if we just go with that. Let's just go with that. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, you're not asking me to believe in miracles. You're not asking me to believe in a dead man rising from the grave. Just, just, let's just go with the Sermon on the Mount. But remember, remember what we're saying here is that to follow the Sermon on the Mount is to bow to the authority of Jesus Christ. If we look at the Sermon on the Mount, if we approach it any other way than understanding that living by it is bowing to Jesus' authority, then we are approaching it in an incorrect way. So we're going to have to ask, is the Sermon on the Mount all we give attention to? Um, secondly, is the Sermon on the Mount to be a guide for Christian living? Again, that's similar to the previous question. Is it, again, is that all we need? Just go by the Sermon on the Mount, that's all that's necessary. We don't, we don't, don't listen to Paul. We don't, have to listen. We don't have to read the rest of the Bible. Just the Sermon on the Mount. Here's an important question here. Are the contents of the sermon entrance requirements for the kingdom of God? Now, this is where we need to really be careful because some approach the Sermon on the Mount by looking at it and going, okay, all right, I've got to do that. I've got to do that. I've got to get this right, get this right. I get those right. I get all these right. I'm in. See, is the Sermon on the Mount, should we approach the Sermon on the Mount as, all right, I'm going to get down to business, get this right, live by this, and I'll get in? Is that, is that the way we should approach? Some people do. Some people do. Next, how are we to understand the sermon in relation to the rest of the New Testament? Because, see, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you say, okay, it's requirements for getting in the kingdom of God. So I keep these, I keep these, I keep these. But then 
Then you get to the New Testament and you do read where Paul said, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works. See, Then we're going to have a conflict. Then we're going to have a tension. So how are we to understand the sermon in relation to the rest of the New Testament? Why are there different ways of reading and interpreting the sermon? Why, why, why within the you know, liberal church, uh, Mennonites, uh, other bodies of believers out there have different approaches to why? 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 Uh, next, what are we to make of the incredibly high demands in the sermon and the apparent impossibility of doing what it says fully and consistently? Now, look at that question really closely. What are we to make of the incredibly high demands in the sermon and the apparent impossibility of doing what it says fully and consistently? Because if you've read, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, if you've read it thoughtfully, I was talking, Dale and I were talking this afternoon. So, you know, it's funny, people you know, who are non-Christians, they, again, we, we've just seen it. They look at it and they go, all we need to do is just live by the Sermon on the Mount. But if you, if you, if you are a believer and you thoughtfully read the sermon, you, you come away and go, this crushes me. <laughs> if I have to, if, on my own, <laughs> on my own, how can I do this? See? So, you know, you, you, you have to look, you have to read this and go, my, my goodness, the demands are high. And then finally, how does obeying Jesus' teaching in the sermon fit with the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith? And these are all things that we're going to have to answer as we ascend the mountain, all right? Now, uh, let me give you a, a quick recap, and then we're going to flip the paper. We're going to flip the paper, and, and we're going to look at some statements that are really important for us our understanding our approach to this Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I mentioned a moment ago uh, Mennonites. And so Mennonites and Amish, they have a unique way of looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, they do not see it as a means to salvation. They do not look at it and go, if we can just keep this, keep this, keep this, keep this, we get in. But they believe it is to literally be obeyed. Now, what do we, you might say, well, of course. But listen, here's, here's what they mean. They demand a life of absolute pacifism. Okay? Mennonites and the Amish are, are pacifists, and they get their position. They get their position from the Sermon on the Mount. Also, they refuse to take any oath, whether in court, pledge of allegiance to the flag, any of those things. Why? Sermon on the Mount. Okay. Uh, they believe in a strict separation of church and state, uh, and they take what Jesus says about judging others as precluding themselves from serving in a court or holding a public office. In other words, you know, they, 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 not on a jury, not as a judge, um, holding public office. Why? Because that would mean that they would have to make a judgment. And, and because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, judge not. See, in other words, all of their positions, all of their positions, which I believe are entirely questionable, all of their positions, nevertheless, they, they come from their belief in a literal, a hard, hard, wooden, literal interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. See, it matters. It matters how you approach something. It matters how we approach the Sermon on the Mount. Do we approach, see, should we approach it as the Anabaptists and the Mennonites in a literal, wooden, hard approach? I think most of us would probably say no, no. See, so it matters. 
It matters how we approach the Sermon on the Mount. Now, flip your paper over, if you will. And these are some uh, statements that um, I found, you know, I thought this will be helpful as we work our way uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. And so I want to go through each one of these paragraphs uh, just just gradually, slowly. Uh, when, when we say here, the sermon, and you'll see these on the over here, the sermon is not law. Now, reason, reason why that, that statement is made is because in Luther, Lutheranism, Martin Luther, Martin Luther said his, his approach, his view of the Sermon on the Mount was that it is law, and as we read it, it should cause us to say, can't do this, I need a Savior. And, and, and exa- you know, really, that is a very, very true statement because if you read it closely, you, you, you go, I need, I need help. I can't, I can't do this on my own. I need a Savior. See? So, so Luther was right in that way, but the sermon is not law. Rather, it is wisdom from God inviting us through faith to reorient our values, vision, and habits from the ways of external righteousness to wholeheartedness toward God. This isn't law, but gospel. In other words, this isn't law, but it's good news. Jesus is inviting us into life in God's kingdom, both now and in the future age. This is grace. So the Sermon on the Mount is not law. Rather, it is wisdom from God. It is grace from God. And notice This is really important, inviting us through faith to reorient our values, vision, and habits from the ways of external righteousness to wholeheartedness toward God. One of the amazing statements in the Sermon on the Mount, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and if if we know anything about righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Again, very strict, very meticulous, but very external. And understand there's a difference between external and internal. There's a difference between, you know, what, what, what we'll, you know, on the outside versus what's on the inside. And the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus nails this again and again. Um, is inhabits from the ways of external righteousness to wholeheartedness toward God. In other words, Jesus drills down on, you know, hey, this is, this is more, you know, let's, let's start from the inside out rather than from the outside in, okay? Now, that is going to be an incredibly powerful theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Watch for that. You know, watch, keep, keep your antennas up for that as you read this sermon. I hope you do. hope you start reading it and read on through and make notes and think. But one of the things you want to pay attention to is drawing us away from this, this mere external righteousness, Put, putting you know, the outside, washing the outside and not worrying about the inside. Next paragraph. No one can perfectly perform the vision of, of the Sermon on the Mount, except Jesus. But this does does not mean it's irrelevant to our lives. By faith and through grace, Jesus is inviting us into a practical life of discipleship. 
we participate in and imperfectly imitate his father-trusting, kingdom-awaiting way of being in the world. Now, I love the phrase, Jesus, in, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is inviting us into a practical life of discipleship. Okay? It's, remember, remember the picture we looked at Sunday, you know, there was the, there was the pile of steel and then there was the, the perfect wheel. You know, and we've said, look, the Christian's, Christian life, Christian conversion is not the wheel. <laughs> you know, we're, we're in a process. We're in a process. And the Bible calls them, you know, a number of different things. But one of, one of the things is discipleship. You know, Jesus, follow me. Come, 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 go with me. Lend, lend your ear to me. Listen, listen to me. Listen, listen to my teaching. You know? And so it's a way of, way of a practical life of discipleship, a way of life going on and on and on. It's not, it's not looking at the Sermon on the Mount going, okay, okay, uh, I got this one, I got this one, I got this one. Am I good now? No, no, it's not that. It's a, it's a lifetime. It's a lifetime. And so Jesus is inviting us into a practical life of discipleship. Uh, next paragraph. The sermon isn't all that we need to know are all that is true of the gospel. Now this, again, see, for those who would say, Sermon on the Mount, is this really all this matters, Sermon on the Mount? The end game of the gospel story is the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. Through his faithfulness, he brings about a new covenant between God and humanity. On this basis alone, empowered by the Spirit, we're made alive. All of this is by grace. Now, what that paragraph is pointing us to is do not approach the Sermon on the Mount, again, as requirements for getting in. I'll, I'll, I'll do this, I'll do this, and I'll, I'll really try hard on this, I'll really try hard on this. If I can just get this, if I can just get this, I'll, I'll get in. No, no. Uh, the sermon isn't all we need. It's not all that's true of the gospel. The end game of the gospel is the story of the death and the resurrection of Christ. Something, something that the Sermon on the Mount doesn't mention. It doesn't mention that. And I think we'd all agree that that's the linchpin. <laughs> so, you know, Sermon on the Mount's all I need? I don't think so, you know. Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount important? Yes, absolutely. But it's, it's not all that is true of the gospel. Final paragraph. Now, standing in this grace, believers respond to Jesus' invitation in the sermon. Our habits and the ways of being are deconstructed and reformed through his teaching and model. Being a disciple is the appropriate and necessary response to God's amazing grace, and the sermon plays a crucial role in that. So, as we get ready to go, our whole goal tonight has been, how should I approach the Sermon on the Mount? As I read, as I study the Sermon on the Mount, how should I approach it? The sermon plays a crucial role in discipleship. Okay, And so, here's what I encourage you to do. Through, through the weeks ahead, read the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe, maybe do this. Maybe read the Sermon on the Mount in, um, let's say, maybe, maybe you have an English Standard Version of the Bible, which, which is what, what I use and what we use here. But then maybe, after you've read it in that version, maybe find, find a, the, the NIV version and, and then read it the next time in the King James Version. And in other words, read, read different translations, and and there there'll be different you know different wordings different way and, and things will begin to you know little things will begin to fire off here and like I say read it and maybe even take some notes maybe jot down some questions you know that uh, you might go hey and you know, I'm just thinking about this how does this work in relation to this 
And uh, together, together, we'll, we'll profit by studying. In fact, again, not just be informed, but be changed. Would you stand with me? Glad that you were interested in being here tonight. And um, I don't know exactly what you were expecting on a first night. Now, next, next week, just so you'll know, next, next Wednesday night is the first Wednesday night of the month, which means it's prayer meeting. And I really wish and invite you to come back and be part of that because just as important as this is, prayer is equally important. And so I would invite you to come and be part of a congregational prayer meeting. It will do you and all of us good. Then the following Wednesday night, that's when we'll come back and we'll actually get into the Beatitude section of the Sermon on the Mount. And here's something for you to think about. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the, those who mourn, is he saying, is he saying, if you do this, if you'll do this, God will give you a blessing. If you do this, God will give you a blessing. Or is it saying something else? Something to think about. Let's pray. Our Father, it would be easy for us this evening to uh, poke holes in everybody else. It's not our intention. Our intention tonight is not to make light of the atheists, not to make light of Unitarians, even though we would strongly, strongly disagree. Our intention is not to make light. Our intention is just to uh, help us to see that uh, how we approach the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching of Jesus, is really important. And so may we approach it as hungry disciples saying, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus, whatever the cost may be. I want to follow Jesus. And I want to do it just today. I don't want to do it just in the sunshine. Uh, May I be committed to following him even in the rain. May you give us the grace to do that. And Holy Spirit, may you empower us to do it. We pray this for the sake of Christ. Amen.